How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. A few weeks ago, we began a new series called A Living Hope and Hopeless Times, a study of First Peter. This is episode four, where Michael teaches from First Peter chapter one, verses six through nine. But before we jump into that, I want to let you know that this Thursday, we will be releasing the first special edition interview of this series. Michael will be talking with his friend, Johnny Erickson Tata. Now, if you have been following In Context for a while, you have certainly heard of Johnny and may have even listened to a few interviews we did with her a while back. But trust me when I say you will not want to miss this episode. So be on the lookout for that this Thursday. But now, let's join Michael as he teaches from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. There are passages that you come to in the Bible, that I come to in the Bible, and we scratch our heads. Maybe they seem to contradict themselves. Maybe we don't understand it. Maybe it just it seems like, well, that couldn't apply today. All of us have had those kinds of encounters with different passages in Scripture. Uh, the passage we're going to look at tonight is a passage that weds two seemingly incompatible theologies of suffering and joy. The bitters and the sweets. Sadness and gladness. How do you conjoin two opposite feelings, opposite emotions, opposite experiences? And uh, hopefully uh, Peter will give us some insight as well as your own study in the word. How do suffering and joy coexist? How do these things get along? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, I want to just read the first verse to begin with. We're going to see this phrase, greatly rejoice. I'm simply going to call it overjoyed. 1 Peter 1 verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Well, I read this word greatly rejoicing. It pops up three times in Peter's first letter here, and it's distinctly religious. In fact, the word is not found outside the New Testament. Peter is the only one who uses it. Not even Paul uses this phrase, greatly rejoicing. It's a Christian word. And I think that's all the more compelling that joy during suffering only makes sense if you're a believer. Otherwise, it's an antinomy. There are two two truths that exist. Suffering and joy cannot coalesce. They cannot be conjoined. And so Paul begins with this greatly rejoicing in this phrase. Let me just stop and make one lesson slash application right here that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you're suffering, you have an otherworldly privilege of knowing a joy that the world can't understand. You have an otherworldly privilege of knowing a joy that the world can't understand. It doesn't necessarily mean you and I are going to feel happy and want to put on a party hat and go out and be, you know, celebrate. It's a different kind of joy. I think the world 
too often you know, creates a, maybe it's like a, a party, a birthday party or a Christmas dinner or a Thanksgiving celebration. And we're happy because we have family together. We're happy because of fill in the blank. And those emotions are great. They're wonderful. I enjoy them as much as anyone. I don't think that even comes close to comprehending what a spiritual joy is when Peter says he greatly rejoices in this. Wayne Grudem writes this way to explain it. When they think about their future inheritance, the Christians to whom Peter is writing respond with an intense salvation joy, which continues throughout their earthly lives. He thinks of such rejoicing in heaven and the realities there to be a normal part of the ordinary Christian life. When your circumstances are difficult, when you're suffering, this audience was dispersed. They were persecuted. They were run out. They lived in a place they did not belong. Do you think they were happy about it? And from a worldly baseline where they, I'm so happy I'm in prison. I'm so happy I'm an expatriate living in another country. I'm so happy I'm persecuted for my faith. So that's why I like the expression, otherworldly joy. When persecution and disappointments and suffering come our way, we're not happy about it. That's the world's measure. That's the world's baseline. So part of what I need to do, and maybe you do as well, is to reframe what this joy looks like in the midst of suffering. To reframe, no matter what my experience tells me about God, no matter what my experience tells me about joy, I've got to reframe it with a biblical theological framework of what Scripture is teaching us. And that's a pretty good foundation stone if, Paul, if Peter begins this section, greatly rejoicing. After all they've been through and the audience he's still writing. Well, they're overjoyed, but right away they're overstressed. Look at the next part of verse 6 again. Even though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been distressed by various trials. First of all, note the temporary nature for a little while. This isn't ongoing. It's not eternal. It's not going to last forever. The King James English reads this way. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. It's a heaviness. It's a distressing thing. The word literally has the idea of an emotional pain, not a physical pain. This is, this, is, this is a word that means stress or sorrow or internal conflict or disappointment. This word does not mean physical pain. Now, certainly, when we have emotional stress, we can feel it physically. That's not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the word is used, the suffering is talking about is internal So their persecution for their faith, their dispersion from their home, living among people whom are not their own, is not a physical weight to them. It's the emotional distress. I'm not around my people. Again, the holidays can be a mixed blessing. It can be a bell curve of those who it's the highlight of their year to it's the worst time of the year. It just depends on our backgrounds and relationships. For those that it's the best time of their life, the best time of their year, they look forward to it all year long. If you took that away, it wouldn't be a physical pain, but it would be an emotional angst. I'm not with my family. It's my first Christmas without so-and-so or whatever. I'm not home for Christmas. I'm stuck at O'Hare. God bless you. Uh, you know, I can't get to where I want to be. And the pain and angst that go along with that is, that's more of the, the weight of this stress that he's talking about. 
to put it real simply, the Christian life is not always a party. Did you catch the phrase, if necessary? If necessary. That intrigues me. Calvin wrote, his purpose was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without cause, it would be grievous to bear. Listen again. His purpose was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without cause, it would be grievous to bear. We might live not knowing the answer to why God, but there is an answer. And that, of course, is the life of faith. Does it mean that we will always find those why? I have friends that say, well, they, they quote you know, Romans 8, 28 all the time, back, backwards and forwards. And I go, that's great. God works all things according to his, plan, you know, for his purpose, but maybe not in my lifetime. That's not real cheery news, but you know, Mike Leslie isn't always a cheery preacher. You know that about me. Uh, many versions quote, um, many, many different iterations of the phrase, suffering is inevitable, but misery is optional. You've heard this probably, lots of different attributions to who said it. Again, Wayne Greedham writes, Peter therefore says that Christians will experience grief, listen, only as it is necessary in the light of God's great and infinitely wise purposes for them. That stinks in my opinion. That's just, that's a bummer. But if I look at my life and you look at yours, candidly, transparently as believers, there's something going on. We are suffering for some reason. We have pain in relationships for a reason. We have trials in marriage for a reason. We have health issues for a reason. We're going to see an answer to one of those, maybe not the answer you want, but one of those in this section tonight. Listen again. Experience grief only as is necessary in the light of God's great and infinitely wise purposes for them. I just thought I was a fallen creature in a fallen context and bad things happened to us. True. But if God is sovereign, and he is, and God is aware of your life and mine, every detail, and he is, and God is loving, and he is, in allowing you to go through what you go through and I to go through what I go through, we attribute that to his sovereign will, even though it stinks, even though it's hard, even though we might not have an answer to that why sometimes. And isn't that probably the best demonstration of faith we can have. I got to believe it even though I hate it. I've got to trust him even though I don't like this experience. Again, I may not know the why behind the suffering, but I can live and ask how. Again, I repeat myself, uh, through chronic pain and four back surgeries and surgeries in my near future, (laughs) uh, I never ask God why, but I always ask him how. How do I do this without being, uh, you know, horrible to my wife? How do I do this with this level of pain? How do I do this without being snippy with my kids? How do I do this fill in the blank? I don't ask him why because I know I deserve nothing. I deserve hell. These trials are diverse. They're manifold. They're variegated is the same word. They come in different shapes and sizes. I think what Peter is telling us, 
Fill in the blank. What stressors you experience as a believer? Keep in mind the primary audience, persecuted for Christ, persecuted for the gospel. It's not just that we're suffering and have allergies and a head cold and a sinus infection and I've got arthritis and whatever. Now, those are trials, certainly, but the generic label can be applied, but we must be careful. Now, these various trials, what they do is they reveal our character. We often say, you know a person who they're really like when they're under pressure, when they're under stress. That doesn't mean we have to be perfect. That doesn't mean sometimes we don't get angry or depressed or sullen or withdrawn or overengaged. But we do find out a character, our character, under pressure. It's interesting, in the family system, when something goes awry in the family system, generally one person kind of emerges as the stabilizing force. It's a fascinating thing to watch. I remember many, many years ago, I was a teenager, and my dad had a, a TIA and a mild stroke. They didn't really know what it was in those times, and he was just, he wasn't himself, and he was three or four days um, basically non-responsive, and we're all standing around. My mother's a wreck. I'm a wreck. I, I, think, I, I think I was still home. My brother was off at college. My sister was the one that emerged, and she was a stabilizing force in the family. It's interesting how under pressure, our character comes out. And as a young teen that didn't know what he didn't know, I didn't know how to respond to those things. There's other times we see this in our, when we look in the mirror, under stress, who comes out? What comes out? So under these trials, under this pressure, it's going to reveal something about our faith and our character. The test can be good or bad. Let's think a little bit about the test. John Lilly explains These either put to the test what is good in a man or they provoke his evil tendency. So when this trial comes along in manifold various ways, God is either showing us the good part or revealing the area that needs attention. The test is not an attempt to trick us. Do you ever have pop tests? I hated pop quizzes. I think professors who have pop quizzes ought to suffer some, you know, imprecatory beating or something. I, I just, you know, what's the point of humiliating your class on a pop test, you know? In seminary, I had a professor that gave us a quiz every day, every class, but we knew going in he was going to have 10 questions on the reading we had the, the days before. But when they say, okay, pull out a sheet of paper, I want to see what you don't know. Oh, what's great. You know, he's not going to get the Professor of the Year Award in my book, that's for sure. But a test that tests what you know is a good test. And this, again, we have to reframe our Western thinking about tests and trials from a biblical perspective. Well, these trials take various forms. Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who are BSFers or preceptors, you study the Bible, the word so that is a subjunctive clause. It's called a henna clause in Greek. Uh, it's a truncation of the word Greek inna, so we call it a henna clause, subjunctive clause. Subjunctive clause typically is giving you a purpose or an explanation. So whenever you read any of the New Testament letters, Paul's, uh, Peter, anyone who writes a New Testament letter, when you see a subjunctive clause, Paul uses them all the time so that, pay attention. Uh, maybe you, like me, draw in your Bible. As my friend said, I, 
I've colored the Bible. I've colored most of the Bible, but I haven't read it all. Uh, but you draw circles around so that. So that subjunctive clause draws your attention. So that the proof of your faith. He's explaining the proof of our faith in this suffering and trials that we're experiencing. Peter anticipates there's a result to the test. Now, technically, these tests are ordinary garden variety persecutions. They can take all kinds of manner or form. It might be a persecution for your faith. It might be because you stand for today, uh, you believe in a heterosexual monogamous relationship for life is what God intended. You might come under attack and hate mail because I have, because you say such a thing. That you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes from the Father except the Well, that's intolerant. That's bigoted, so forth and so on. So I wouldn't call it persecution, but it could surmount to something that becomes more vitriolic. It just depends on how our culture goes. Well, these persecutions are going to so that they're going to prove your faith, Peter says. Two things they're going to do. One, they're going to refine your faith. Secondly, prove the reality of it. They're going to refine your faith, number one, and they're going to prove the reality of your faith. Let's talk about each of those for just a moment. The refining of our faith. The refining of gold is no uncommon metaphor. The ancients knew it. Isaiah refers to it. This is nothing new. The ancients knew how to refine silver and gold. And if you've not seen the process, it's, it's a simple technology is advanced, but the process is the same. You melt the solid metal. And when you melt gold or silver or lead, anything, what comes to the top? Dross. The impurities in the metal. And so you, you get a furnace, you get it hot, you melt the gold, you skim off the dross. Then you have to let the, the, the gold completely cool back to its solid state. It takes hours, if not days. And then what do you do? You fire it again. And you refine it one more time. And you know what? The second time, there'll be another layer of dross, impurities. And you skim those off. And you set it aside and you let it cool again. You do this over and over and over until you can get as much. You could, you could technically do it forever and still get impurities. That's why there's different carrots of, uh, uh, different carrots of gold. Not carrots of gold. What am I trying to say? Yeah, carrot of gold. So they have 18 carat and 10 carat and 22 carat. It's been refined more times. And certain things happen in, in, in the heating of the metal and cooling it. Silver is the same way. Again, I've shared this story many times about lead soldiers. How many of you heard my story about lead soldiers? A few of you. So I grew up, uh, we had these molds that were made out of some type of tin metal. And um, they were of different army soldiers. And some of you are old enough to remember when they used lead weights to balance tires on your car. And gas stations were more than just self-service. They were actually gas stations that did mine repairs. And they all, almost all of them fixed flats and balanced tires. And I remember as a boy, when we pull up, my brother and I get out, and we would scour the uh, gas station uh, pavement looking for lead weights and put them in our pockets and take them home. We had a big can of lead weights. And when dad uh, had the patience and time and willingness, he would fire up his homemade Bunsen burner, which would be illegal today, uh, in the garage, burn the house down. Of course, can't raise a baby that way. Can't do Bunsen burners today. <laughs> and we would, uh, had a little, there were little oval, sh- kind of uh, elongated shaped weights, and they had a steel tang on them. You break the tang off, you put the little lead weight in this little cast iron thing with the Bunsen burner, and it would melt. 
And right away, in a matter of seconds, the dross would come to the top. And we'd skim it off. And we'd do it three or four times. Because if you didn't, when you poured that lead into the mold, we had infantry guys. One was like standing with a rifle, one was laying, one was prone, one was on his knee. They were, they were cool molds. And uh, the hardest one to make was the guy that was standing with his rifle. Uh, because the amount of lead to get to that mold in the top and fill out the rifle in his head was quite a challenge. And if you were in a hurry and didn't get all the dross out of the lead, you'd get the mold all done, go through all that rigmarole, open it up, the guy'd have no head, no rifle. <laughs> he wasn't refined. You had to refine that over and over and over again to get the dross. What a great spiritual illustration. Your faith is refined. You and I go through the fire. Do you think it's comfortable to go through the fire? Do you think people who are persecuted for their faith around the world or here in our own country, it's comfortable? People who lose their businesses because they won't bake a cake? People that are being persecuted in another culture because it's illegal to be a Christian? Not to be trite or theologically glib, they're being refined. It is a process by which God is making them into something they're not. Now, what we know abstractly, theologically, is once you're refined, you're better for it. Does anybody like being refined? No. Cindy and I have a dear friend. He's a state senator in Texas, Brian Birdwell. And he was, uh, in 9-11, he was in the Pentagon, and he was uh, a serious burn victim that spent uh, 13 weeks in the Washington Burn Center. If you've been around uh, burn patients, uh, it is a crucible that is, I, I mean, even the strongest stomach. When you go in there and see what they do to burn victims, I won't, I won't detail it because some of you wouldn't have the stomach for it. It's, it's horrific. And in the chlorine baths, um, when they're screaming, they're on wide open, op- they give as much opiates as they can handle, and they're in these chlorine baths, and they're screaming, and most of them want to die. Why don't you just let me die? Let me die. Let me die. As soon as they out, they debreed him with a brush. I mean, this is excruciating what they go through. And he was wrapped head to toe in bandages, and they would use uh, human skin over the areas that were burned so badly. And uh, of course, that dies like a scab. Again, not to be too grotesque, but um, he went through 12 weeks there, and I think he's close to 100 post surgeries. Um, he's a senator in the state of Texas now for the, at the state level. And uh, he and his wife wrote a book called Refined by the Fire. And um, early on, he would go to the burn center with these kids who are burned, which is the ultimate horror. And he would take his shirt off and let the little kids come and feel him. This is what it's going to be like. This is what your skin's going to look like. And you, maybe you can't move your arm completely over lost part of his ear or his nose. And they had to do some prosthetic work on him. And, and they would, he would go and say, this, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's going to take a long time, but you're going to be okay. Would you rather learn that from a medical professional who's doing the treatment to you or someone who's been through it? Someone who's been through it. Doctors and nurses have a very short life in that world. They can't do it for years. They can do it for a few years, and they've got to change different areas of medicine. It's just too painful. And, and so this refining is miserable. Now, Brian and Mel are different people, defined by one act. 
of him being burned on 9-11. Think about this in spiritual terms. The pain with which you are enduring is refining you into something you're not. You can never be that better person unless you endure the refining. Peter is saying that these problems, these persecutions refine our faith. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I don't like the thesis, but I believe it. There's no growth apart from suffering. I just don't think we grow as believers apart from struggle. I, I don't think we grow in prosperity and health and life being happily ever after. Because then we get uh, sort of smug and, and proud about everybody else in their life. And if you just do like me. Secondly, it proves the reality of our faith. Ed Bloom writes, stress deepens and strengthens a Christian's faith and displays its reality. Stress deepens and strengthens a Christian's faith and displays its reality. How we go through the fire, how we go through the suffering, not only refine our faith, but it proves a reality to our faith. F.B. Meyer, some of you, again, Bible students, probably have some of his collection. He's an extraordinary writer in the 1800s. He's writing on his book about Abraham's faith and writing about the sacrifice of Isaac. He said, God wasn't testing Abraham to see if he'd fail. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, to the mountain on which I tell you, and there sacrifice him to, to me. And we know the story too well. The next morning early, he gets up. And he's got the wood and the fire, and he takes his son Isaac. And Isaac says, where's the, where's the sacrifice? The Lord's going to provide. Abraham's faith, Meyer says, was God's vote of confidence. I love that. It was God's vote of confidence that Abraham had walked with God long enough that he would pass the test. It wasn't a pop test to see if, okay, well, you failed this tomorrow morning. It was, look, Abraham, we've been doing this together a lot of years. I told you you were going to be a blessing to the world. I told you your descendants would be innumerable. I told you that you would have this land and blessing and those who cursed you would be affected by it, those who blessed you, and that you'd be a blessing to the world. I told you all that. Now take the one hope of that and go kill him. And he does it early the next morning. God's vote of confidence in him. He continues in this old book. He says, many seemingly insignificant events are sent to test us before a greater trial is permitted to break in on our heads. We are sent to climb the lower peaks before we are urged up to the loftiest summits. We're made to run with footmen before contending with horses. We are taught to wade in the shallows before venturing into the swells of the ocean's waves. Each one of these experiences and how we pass the test, as it were, how we live by faith in those conditions, uh, it doesn't make us victorious. It makes us ready for the next one. It's, it's almost like a callus. Those of you who are runners, if you've done a half marathon or a marathon, God bless you. Um, I, I've never seen the point and never will. Um, you know, but uh, I, I know enough about training 
I know enough about sports to know the, how you train, and there's all sorts of methodologies for a person to train. And they say pretty much anyone can learn, go through the experience of train, and uh, you're going to get, you have to go to that place where you don't get open blisters. You've got you to gotta make calluses. And after a while, if you work out with weights, if you do aerobics, if you do bar exercise, whatever you do, you've got some calluses, maybe not literally, where you're doing things. And you can now, let's say you could go you know, on a 10-mile run where when you started you could barely make a two-mile run. Not unlike the spiritual life here. The refining of our faith through trials, but to prove the reality of your faith is the next part of this. So the most refined person is still going to have to have his or her faith matured. Best writes, this is one but not the only answer to the question of suffering in the Christian life. Hear what he's saying? One of the reasons this joy and suffering thing commingle together in places we don't like, and Peter's rejoicing about it, is because you're learning something the world can't comprehend. The suffering with which you suffer is making you into a man or woman that you are not. And there's no other way to get there, according to Peter, according to the Scripture. It is the suffering that makes us grow. It's the suffering that refines our faith. It's the suffering that proves our faith. The result of the testing is in verse 7, that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A sidebar for you BSF precept Bible study folks. This phrase is complicated in, in English and in Greek. The simple question is, is this talking about what God's going to say to us or what we're going to say to God? Some believe that the proof of the faith is going to be refined in such a way that we're going to receive praise, honor, and glory from God. And at first blush, that might sound like, that's not, that's not right. There's actually some pretty good argument toward that view. I don't agree with that view. I think this is vertical. I think what he's saying is that when your faith is refined, when your faith is demonstrably proven over time that you're the real deal, then the joy of this is that you're going to give praise and glory and honor to God. Because the average person that gets beat up in life, that suffers insufferably in life, is not a person of praise and honor and glory to God. They're a miserable person. We all know people some in our families, some in our friendships, some that we just encountered that are miserable people. When Cindy and I were in college, we had a a major uh, that worked with the disabled. Uh, She worked in social work with an emphasis on helping those in grief and death recovery, and I worked with uh, alcohol and drug abusers. And uh, as part of our program, we spent time in mental hospitals, in rehab hospitals. We went down to the it was called TIER, Texas Institute of Rehabilitation Research, which is primarily quadriplegic and paraplegic uh, patients. And there were pretty much two kinds of people, even the ones we visited that were in psych wards and, and prisons and Rust State Hospital. There were basically two kinds of people, those that were inconsolable and those that were hopeful. Bitter or sweet, it was pretty simple. And if you visit your grandparents or some friend in a nursing home or what do we call them now assisted living if you visit someone you'll find that metric pretty quick too and unless they have really serious conditions where they're not perhaps present they're going to be bitter or sweet it's a baseline let me suggest and this isn't universal because some christians become this way let me suggest if what peter's saying here if i understand it correctly is 
as you and I endure the refinement, as you and I, our, the, our quality of our faith is tested and proven, we're going to be the ones that are going to be praising, honoring, and glorifying God, even though we're under the circumstances. So when Cindy and I visit our friends who've lost their husbands and are for many, many years in Dallas and they're smiling at the future, sure, they're sad about losing their husband. They're sad about being alone. But they've got this epiphany, the Shekinah about them, this otherworldly. They know their life is short, but they have had a, a wonderful run, and they look at their children and grandchildren, and maybe great-grandchildren, with great joy. And there's those in the same category that look back with great bitterness. I'm not saying all Christians are going to respond that way. Please don't make the conclusion of what I'm saying. I am saying I think as we endure the refinement, as we demonstrate our faith according to Peter, the proof of that is an interesting word. The proof of your faith is going to be honor, praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the aim. Only in that day will there be full disclosure of what God has achieved in the lives of his suffering saints, writes Hebert again. Only in that day will there be a full disclosure of what God has achieved in the lives of his suffering saints. you ever think about when you step across this threshold to the next threshold? You only do it once. It's the only thing in life we do one time from life to death. Do you ever wonder what that's going to be like? I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm trying, when you go through the door, you, what is, what is it going to be like? We've got this, you know, we've got these uh, flannel graphs. Those of you who are old enough or YouTube pictures of what it's like to go to heaven or cotton ball sheep and cotton clouds and all this palaver we indoctrinate our killed children with. But do you ever think of what it's going to be like when you walk across that threshold and you see Christ? My suspicion, it ain't going to matter when the door closes. You and I are going to be so overwhelmed, A, that we're there, B, what we see, C, that he's looking at us face to face. I love, I've shared it again too many times perhaps, but I love the expression in Revelation when he says he, when he saw the angel of the Lord, he fell on his face like a dead man. I think the redeemed, sanctified people we will be when we cross this life to eternal life we're going to be falling on our face like dead men and women. That's why I think it's eternity, because Jesus got to keep picking us all back up. <laughs> Every time we see him, boom, you're on your face. Man, Lord, I can't believe I'm here. Neither can I. Stand up, you know. <laughs> Let's do the song. The things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do, do you believe that? Or is it just sort of this thing out there? You see, until you and I get a perspective of our salvation and this eternal reservation we've been talking about, we're going to live life horizontally. And we, none of us can live vertically all the time. You're so heavenly minded, you know, early, earthly good, right? But can we live it a little more vertically than we have been? That's the testing of your faith. That's the demonstration of your faith. Faith results in real joy. Peter writes in verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. It's a beautiful explanation of faith, trust, put your belief in someone to do something for you that you cannot do for yourselves. 
Every time you go into surgery and you go under general anesthesia, you're putting your faith in someone, in people, to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself, and you don't know what the outcome's going to be. It's astonishing to me that we sign all those papers and we let them do to us what they will. Because why? We believe. We believe, generally speaking, they're going to take care of us. Unless something really strange goes wrong, out of the ordinary, we'll probably come out of this alive. How much more that you believe, that you trust, that you put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Their love for Christ is interesting here because Peter says, you haven't seen him and you believe him. You've never touched him and known him and you love him. That's a crazy maker. There's nothing horizontally in our experience that is similar to what we ask a person when we explain the gospel and say, do you trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ? What compels us to love somebody we haven't seen? God's spirit. There's no human explanation for this. Let me create a religion over here and give it a name, and I want you to believe in it. You know, people will do that. They do it all all the time. But when God's spirit bears witness with your spirit, and there's a love for Christ and a faith in him, when you haven't seen him, it's a sustainable grace that there's no human explanation for it. So we await a future salvation based on a current expression of faith. Another lesson here, just, oh, by the way, faith that is being refined is not only genuine, it's one that finds joy in the suffering. Faith that is being refined is not only genuine, it's one that finds joy in the suffering. I, for many years, would read James chapter 1. If you want to turn over there, I'll stop. James chapter 1, verse 2 and I would read this passage, and I've even had heard sermons preached on it. I walked out going, "Man, I must not be a Christian. I'm convicted. This is I don't I don't understand this." Until I spent some time studying the text, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. And I've had people say, well, "You know, you should praise God when this happens. When this when the divorce is filed. When you hear about cancer. When someone's broken into your store. When someone's taken. You should praise God. That should be your response." I'm going, "This is." baloney but that's i've heard it taught maybe you have i've heard people tell me that when i'm going through something where's the joy michael i'm restraining it right now (laughs) consider it joy my brother all joy when you encounter various trials i hate the way james writes that not if when look knowing that the testing of your faith same nomenclature testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in in nothing this the language here is so important it's it's a passive piece of language what he's saying is consider it joy brother when you encounter various trials no he's saying consider it joy parentheses because when you go through it you're going to learn endurance so look at the sentence again if you have your bible open consider it joy my brethren Verse 4, let endurance have its result. What he's saying is that when you go through this, over time, you'll look back on the trial and go, I endured the trial by God's grace, God's spirit, God's power, God's people, God's word sustained me in the trial. And now I can go, wow, I learned some things there. I endured it. And that's when you crease the first smile. 
So consider joy, brethren, because when you go through all this, you're going to have endurance. And endurance is going to have an affect on you. And once you've gone through this horrific thing and you get out the other side of the tunnel, you're going to go, wow, I was, wasn't that smart. I was pretty stupid at places. I made some poor choices. But he sustained me. And I can tell you today, you can survive four back surgeries. You can stand up here and say, you can survive chemotherapy. You can stand up here and say, I can survive the loss of a child. You can stand up and say, I I can survive the loss of a spouse. Because as you go through that, how? By faith. Then you get to the place. Does it ever take the pain away? No. But what did you learn in the loss, in the disease, in the disappointment, as you walked by faith and now look back on that experience and go, I'm not happy about what happened. But wow, what did I learn? How did God sustain me? And that's where we're going from the shallows to the waves. We're going from the foothills to the mountains. And this, I think, was what Peter means by the proving of your faith. That it's not trying to prove other people you're saved. It's that your faith is being honed. It's refined. The dross is being skimmed off. And as you and I age... The older we get, if our sanctification keeps going in the general upward direction, uh, we are a more refined believer, a more mature believer. I have to confess, I hadn't always been fun in my life. But where I am today at 60, and what I know about God at 60, even though I got questions about 65, 70, 75, 80, I look back on 60 years, as my wife reminds me, he's been faithful till today. For you. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe about him? That's the kind of sustaining, proving faith we have. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.